Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 3. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. It will also be on the screen. Perhaps the most well-known chapter in the entirety of the Bible. John, chapter 3, the first 15 verses. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. And may he write its truths upon each of our hearts this morning. Let's go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift you have given us of your word without which we would not know you, we could not know you, and would not know the way of salvation that you have brought us. We were, every single one of us, we were guilty of our sins. We were rebels before you. We were dead spiritually. We had no eyes to see you. We turned our gaze instead to all the fleeting treasures of the world that surround us. We had no ears to hear you. We were wandering aimless. We were driven by no higher motive than our own hearts to guide us. And we had no hearts to love you, prizing the created things far more than we prized the creator of them. We had no minds to know you. We were content to live oblivious to the true realities that really lie behind our world and our lives. We had no mouths to taste your joys. Instead, we indulged ourselves to our heart's delight on the things that do not satisfy and that cannot satisfy. We had no hands to obey you. We disobeyed you. We committed all kinds of evil by our deeds, by our actions. And so, Lord, we praise you for your patience toward us. Any lesser being would have grown tired of such insolent rebellion long ago. But your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts, you tell us. And the reason why is because you show far more patience and compassion than any of us would dare imagine or dream of. And so we praise you, Lord, for your grace, which makes us yours. It's not because of anything in us, not because of anything that we had done, not because of anything we will do, but you loved us and sent Christ Jesus to be lifted high upon a cross to draw your people to yourself. So we thank you for your spirit's work in our hearts, who has caused us to be born again, giving us faith, turning our eyes to behold Jesus, making us willing to follow you and enabling us to do so. We could do nothing if not for your work in us, for your grace, for your mercy, for your love. And so we praise you, Lord God. And so as we come to you, your word, we see these truths from your word this morning. 
I pray that you would drive these truths deep into our hearts, that you would, through your word, expose in our hearts any areas in which we are misguided about the way of salvation, any ways we are trusting in the wrong things, whether that be things around us or things within us, and cause us to cling to Jesus Christ. You say it is as simple as a look, and yet this look even is impossible if not for you working by your spirit. So we ask that you would do that, Lord God. You say your word will not return to you void. And we ask that you would be faithful to that promise this morning. And we ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So we come this morning in our study of John's gospel to, as I mentioned, chapter 3, which might be the most well-known chapter in the entirety of the Bible. This chapter is about a conversation Jesus has with a religious man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes to him with uh, some, some important questions that really get at the heart of what it means to be saved. It gets at the heart of salvation. And what is in our text this morning is really the difference between heaven and hell, between eternal life and eternal death. Jesus, in this conversation, sits with a man who thinks he's going to heaven. And Jesus tells him, you will never see the kingdom of God unless something changes. This is a stunning portrait. It's striking to us. It's something we must make sure we understand ourselves. So the chief question that's before us this morning is, what do you think of Jesus? What do you think of Jesus this morning? Do you look at him as this, this enigma? You can't really understand him or his ways. Do you look at him as the one who just does a bunch of signs and wonders and all these miraculous things? Or do you look at him as the one who came to save sinners? The way that you, the way that I answer that question will have eternal significance. And all of it centers around the topic of birth. You know, there may be no more dreaded question for a parent to hear than your little child coming up and saying, hey, mommy, where do babies come from? And you're thinking, all right, now, now in that moment, all the lines between truth and fiction start to be blurred. And you're saying, okay, how do I get out of this conversation right now? And maybe you say something like, well, that's a great question, dear. Go ask your father. I don't know what it is. But uh, this morning, we will see where spiritual children come from. Because sooner or later, everybody comes to understand where, where babies come from. But, but there are a great many people walking around in our world today who have no clue where spiritual children come from. Have no clue what it means to actually be born again. And have no clue that it actually takes a supernatural and sovereign, miraculous work of God in our hearts to do this. People walking around thinking, well, maybe I had something to do with it. But we don't talk that way when it comes to our physical birth. You don't say, well, you know, I just, I kind of got tired one day of being in the womb, so I just decided to get up and walk out and, and decide to be born. We, we don't talk that way, and yet we so often talk that way when it comes to our spiritual birth. Of, you know what, kind of, I just, uh, this just happened one day, I just decided to do it, and hey, that, that's that. But, but the question before us this morning is, where does this new birth come from? And it comes from God. So really, there is only one main point this morning that I want you to get. One main point is this. You must be born again by the Spirit through looking at Jesus. You must be born again by the Spirit through looking at Jesus. That's going to be our outline. We're just going to kind of break that down this morning. And our story is set within the context of a conversation that happens with Jesus and this religious leader named Nicodemus. We don't know much about him. We don't know much about Nicodemus. But there are a few clues in our text that, that kind of fill us in. The first one is this, Nicodemus is a man. You say, okay, that's rather obvious, Josh. But, but here's, here's my point in saying it. If you remember last week, Pastor Dan uh, showed us how Jesus knew what was in man. He knew the thoughts and intentions of man's heart. So, so back up, chapter 2, verse 25. Let's get a running start into our text. Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. 
Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus running right into it. In other words, the text is telling you, John is telling you that when this man, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus, this Jesus is the one who knows exactly what's in his heart before Nicodemus even opens his mouth. And so, in fact, we'll see that before Nicodemus can even ask a question, Jesus seems to answer what Nicodemus is wondering. And don't, you know, this, this is men and women. In chapter three, Jesus comes to a man named Nicodemus and knows exactly what's in his heart. Chapter four, Jesus comes to a woman at the well, knows exactly what is in her heart. This Lord Jesus, when he approaches someone for conversation, he knows what's going on in them before they even open their mouths to share. The second thing we know about Nicodemus is he's a Pharisee. It tells us he was a man of the Pharisees. Now to our ears, that sounds like a bad thing. I don't want to be a Pharisee about it. But to the Jewish ears, that would have been a high compliment, a high praise. These were the religious leaders of Israel. These were the ones that spent their time studying the scriptures, pouring over them to understand them. These were the moral, uh, these were the moral teachers. But here's the problem that the Pharisees ran into. They became exceedingly religious moralists, meaning they cared about what was on the outside. And as long as you did the right things, then you were Okay. And so they say, well, let's keep the law, but let's also add a number of things to the law, and let's keep all those things too. And so they, they kind of they measured themselves by how much they were uh, abiding by those commandments, how much they're keeping those. And so what they were doing is they were looking on the outside and thinking that's really where religion lies. And maybe some of you this morning find yourselves thinking much the same way. Let's look at what's on the outside and what I'm doing, and that will measure my standing before God. The third thing we learn about Nicodemus is this. He was not only a Pharisee, he was also a ruler of the Jews, we read. So what you have is you have these Pharisees throughout Israel, these religious teachers, and from that group, you have an even more elite group of 70 uh, called the Sanhedrin. It's the ruling council. So these kind of like the senators of, you know, they're, they're kind of governing the affairs of Israel, and Nicodemus was one of them. This is a man with considerable power and influence. But even from among that group, it seems that he was one of a particular esteem. Look at verse 10. Jesus answers him this way, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? He doesn't just say, well, you know, of all the teachers in Israel, Nicodemus, you're one of them. No, he says, are you the teacher of Israel? The teacher. In other words, it seems, okay, there's this group of Pharisees. From among them, there's a more elite group, the Sanhedrin. And from that group, there's an even more elite group that's kind of the teachers of Israel, the most respected teachers in the land. And guess what? That's Nicodemus. This is the guy that everybody else came to when they had questions. And we see him coming to Jesus with the question. We see him approaching Jesus instead. And here's what he leads off with in verse two. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus has a certain level of belief. He believes Jesus came from God. He believes that Jesus uh, um, does these good things from God, and he believes that Jesus is a good teacher, rabbi. But remember, as we saw last week, there are different kinds of belief that are happening in John's gospel. As Dan mentioned, there is a kind of superficial belief, or there is a kind of supernatural birth, and it matters a great deal which is which. See, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, but he is not a true believer. That's why Jesus comes to him and says, you gotta be born again, here's your problem. But it's also why I think John mentions that Nicodemus came at night. Now, it really happened that way. And probably the reason he came at night was because he was scared of what it might do to his reputation. But in John's gospel, I think the reason he mentions it is because John has a larger theme that's going on between darkness and light. And John will unpack that those who are disobeying the Lord are walking in darkness, those who are following the Lord are walking in light. In fact, 
lest you think this is stretching it a little bit. In this very same conversation with Nicodemus, later in chapter three, we'll see next week, Jesus brings up that very theme, that those people who are rebelling against him are those who love the darkness. Those people who are following him are those who love the light. Why does John tell us Nicodemus comes at night? Because Nicodemus is one who does not understand Jesus as savior and is walking in darkness of his sins. There is a kind of belief that sees the signs but does not trust the savior who does them. He's not a believer. But he does have a nagging question that he just can't get out of his mind about this Jesus. And before he can even ask it, Jesus answers it. Verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus came to Jesus saying, We see all the signs that you do. And Jesus instead responds, But you will not see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. It is possible to see the signs of Jesus without seeing the kingdom of Jesus. And can you imagine how a Jewish person would have read this to learn that the teacher of Israel was actually going to hell unless something changed? Can you imagine how they would have received this? This statement from Jesus said to the most respected and religious man in the nation of Israel is a clear evidence that salvation is not about what you and I do. It's not about the external evidence of it. It's not about just follow the law, do enough good things, and you'll do it. Because if that was the case, Nicodemus is set. If Christianity is just about doing better, trying your best, doing the right things, not sleeping around, not swearing a whole lot, if Christianity is just about doing that, then Nicodemus is coasting into the kingdom of God. And Jesus instead comes to him and says, you must be born again or you'll never see heaven. Friends, Christianity is not about what you or I could ever do. It's about what Christ has done. And Nicodemus is one who doesn't get it. Nicodemus needs to hear from Jesus that he has contributed nothing to his own bank account when it comes to this standing before the Lord. All those good things he is doing, all, all, all his efforts trying harder to be a better person has not saved him and will not justify him. The only way to heaven is to be born again of God. So think about it, friend, if you're here and you consider yourself to be a Christian this morning, if you're here and you say, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm, I'm a Christian, ask yourself why that is. Why is that? Is it because you're an American? You know, you go a lot of other places in the world and they will assume American means Christian. Do you assume the same thing? It's kind of this Christian uh, kind of nation type thing, so as long as I'm an American, I'm good. Is it because you live in Ashland? the world headquarters of nice people. And you think, you know what? Uh, I'm a nice person too. And a lot of other people around here follow Jesus. So as long as I'm a nice person and do the right things, I must be a Christian. Is it because you grew up in a religious family? Your parents, grandparents, they're all following Jesus. And so you kind of say, you know, just kinda, I just kind of absorb the faith from them or something. Is it because you go to church and try to live a good life? In fact, you even go to church on Memorial Day weekend. Is, it, is that the reason why? What is the reason why you're sitting here saying, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian? Because none of those things will make you right before God. None of those things make you a Christian. Only being born again of God. You know, I was, I was born in a wonderful home with Christian parents, Christian grandparents, whole Christian family, a wonderful church, great Christian friends, great education. I mean, uh, the whole thing. It was... I'm extremely grateful for that. But you know why I'm a Christian is not because of any of those things. It's because of a supernatural work of God in my heart to cause me to be born again to love Jesus. That is what it means to be a Christian. You know, you can tell a lot about the seriousness of a person's sickness by the remedy that it's prescribed. 
If you fall and you go into the ER just to get it checked out a little bit and you think, you know what, probably all this is gonna take is just put a little ice on it, give it a little time, and I'll be okay. And the doctor comes back and tells you, we've gotta operate on it right now. He has not told you what's wrong, but you have an idea of the seriousness of it by the remedy that he's prescribed. And so Jesus has not even told Nicodemus yet what is wrong with him, and yet we have a very clear clue as to what is wrong because the remedy is, is not something like, oh, just try a little, no, it's, you gotta be born again. You gotta be made new. This is a serious condition. And the Bible expands upon that. It says that we are sinners, that we stand guilty before God, and in fact, we are described as being dead in our sins. You know what dead people need? They need to be made alive. They can't just get up and decide to try harder the next day. They need to be made alive. And that's why the gospel is not just some good advice from Jesus that you can take or leave if you want. He says in verse seven, you must be born again. This is not just some friendly invite to the party that's happening. It says, hope you can make it. This is a command of God. Obey this or perish. It's a matter of eternal significance. We must be raised from the dead. If you are not born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. But Nicodemus doesn't get it. He asks, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, Nicodemus is not stupid. He, he knows that it's impossible for someone to climb back into the mother's womb physically. In fact, I would guess he said this rather sarcastically to Jesus. Okay, Jesus, do you take me for a fool? Who do you think I am? Of course this isn't gonna be possible. But as happens often in the Gospel of John, Jesus is mistaken by other people who think that he is talking merely about physical realities when he has in mind something deeper, something spiritual at play. See, the, the, the term here, born again, could literally be translated born from above. Everybody is born, you, you all have a birthday. There's, there's a day where you were born, you emerged from your mother's womb. Everybody is born physically, but not everybody is born spiritually. To be born again means you are given spiritual life by God. But Nicodemus doesn't think that's possible. And for whatever reason, he thinks he's, he's well past that. He says, even when, when I'm old, is this gonna be possible? How can I be born when he's old? In, in other words, perhaps Nicodemus is thinking, hey, uh, I'm well past time for any of that stuff. That's impossible now. I've lived too long, gone too far for any of that to be true of me. And maybe you're thinking the same thing spiritually. That's not possible for me. No, I'm too old for that. I've lived too long. I've done too much. It's impossible for me now. There can't be a future for me there because of my past here. But do not mistake it, that Jesus is saying, okay, yes, with the flesh, that's impossible. With you and me, that's impossible. But with the spirit of God, it is possible. And that's why Jesus says, you must be born again. How? By the spirit of God. It's not you or I that do this work, it's he who does this work. What is needed is supernatural transformation. It's not about a superficial kind of belief that just sees the signs. It's about a, a supernatural birth that causes us to see Jesus. The new birth is by the Spirit. And this is how Jesus responds to Nicodemus' questioning. He says this in verse five. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit.
Jesus is driving at in these verses how this new birth is a work of the Spirit of God. It's not up to you or me, it's up to him. Think about how much did you have to do with your physical birth? What did you do to bring that about? Nothing. What do we do to bring about our spiritual birth? Nothing. Jesus gives two illustrations to give evidence to this reality. He uses the illustration of water, and he uses the illustration of wind, both of them to describe the Spirit's work in our lives. And so we say, okay, well, well, where do water and wind show up? Well, there's a passage in the Old Testament where those two things show up together to describe the Spirit's work. And remember, Jesus is talking with the religious leader of Israel, the, the teacher of Israel, this guy who, who, who claimed to know the Scriptures. And all throughout our text, there are allusions, different allusions to the Old Testament, Jesus is, uh, it's, it's amazing that Jesus is one who can sit with children and he can come to the, 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 those who are poor and needy, but he can also go toe-to-toe with the religious leaders who are, are, are very intelligent and seeking the scriptures and Jesus can look at them and say, well, listen, okay, you want to say you know your Bible? Let me ask you this. And go at him. So he, I think he's drawing from Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37 when he says these things. In Ezekiel 36, God promises that he will give a new covenant to his people. And he promises that he would sprinkle them with clean water and he would put his spirit within them to renew them. So Jesus draws on that picture and says, okay, you, you know, uh, it's not about, uh, so this, this passage is not about water baptism. This is about uh, his cleansing like water. So what do you do when you get dirty? Well, you, somehow you want to cleanse it with water, shower or something, and you want to cleanse it. That's, that's what the spirit of God does in our hearts. He cleanses us like water cleanses. He cleanses us from our sins. That's what the spirit does. Ezekiel 37 the next chapter, God takes Ezekiel the prophet to a valley filled with a bunch of dry bones, dead people, and says, preach to them. And you say, okay, how's that for, a, for an audience? And Ezekiel starts preaching, and God causes a wind to blow upon the bones, and he breathes new life into them. So here in Ezekiel 36 and 37, you have the water and you have the wind to describe what the Spirit is doing. And the word for breath and wind and spirit is all the same word there. And so God causes a wind to come and breathes new life into these people to make them alive again. So what does the Spirit of God do? He, he is the one who cleanses us like water, and he is the one who breathes new life into us when we are dead. That's what he does. So these are pictures that Jesus gives to describe, to illustrate what the Spirit of God does. And neither of these things are things that we can muster up on our own. Because Jesus says to Nicodemus, all right, do you hear that? It's probably, a, it's probably a, it's, it's at night, so it's probably a dark, stormy night. The wind is howling. And he says to Nicodemus, do you hear that? You're talking about the wind? Yeah, the wind. Where's it coming from? I don't know. Where's it going? I don't know. Uh, can you predict the wind? Not really. Can you direct the wind? Certainly not. Jesus says, so too is the Spirit of God. You can't tell where he's moving, but you can certainly see evidence of it when he does, just like with the wind. I don't know, maybe you've had a run-in with the wind before. Last summer, I was at the, the beach, and I was doing some reading, and you know, we had one of those like tent umbrella type things that you set up, and, you know, most of the time I'm in the sun, but I get miserable when I'm hot. So I was under the tent this one time. I was doing some reading, and a great wind started coming upon, and the tent collapsed upon me, and it's blowing all in my face. And you know what I did not do in that moment? I did not say to the wind, hey, could you kind of take a break for a little bit? Because I can't do that. None of us can do that when it comes to the wind, and none of us can do that when it comes to the Spirit of God. But we can certainly see where he is moving because we see evidence of it all around us, just like with the wind. 
And just like we cannot predict or direct the wind, neither can we predict or direct the work of the Spirit. But just like with the wind, there will be evidence where the Spirit is working. He is the one who will bring about this new birth in our lives. It's not man who brings this about, it's God. It's not man who directs the wind any more than God directs the wind. It's not man who brings about a spiritual birth any more than we brought about our physical birth. See, these illustrations that Jesus gives could not more strongly emphasize the fact that all this salvation, this new birth, this regeneration is a work of God and not man. A few chapters later, Jesus says this in John 6, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Titus chapter 3, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Friend, if you have been saved, if you are sitting here and you have been born again, make no mistake, that is because God sent his spirit to, into your heart to regenerate you, to cause you to be born again. It's not something you or I could do, it's something he does and so let's not live like we are the ones who brought it about. Let's not live like, oh, look how great I am because this happened. Let's say, look how great Jesus is because this happened. And I think it's no mistake, no coincidence, that right after this conversation with Nicodemus in John 3 comes a conversation with John the Baptist where he says, he must increase and I must decrease. Why? Because those people who have been truly born again will recognize that my life is not to be lived for myself, but to be lived for him, because to him alone be all the glory and praise, because I did nothing to bring it about. He did all of it. By the Spirit of God, not by man. And how does he do his work? How does the Spirit of God do his work? By causing you to look to Christ. He lifts your gaze up to say, look at Jesus. Look at him. The Spirit of God opens your eyes so that you can see him. He opens your ears so that you can hear him. He opens your heart so that you can trust him. He opens your mind so that you can know him. He opens your hands so that you can obey him. This is precisely the point that Nicodemus missed. Nicodemus knew a great many things about scripture, but he had missed the entire point of scripture because he missed how it was all about Jesus, how it was all pointing to Christ. He saw the signs. He knew Jesus is from God, but he missed the fact that this Jesus is the long-awaited and the long-promised Messiah come to save sinners. Nicodemus missed that. And that's the rebuke that Jesus gives to him. Look in verse nine. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how could you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. See, Jesus has authority to speak into these things. Jesus has authority to make these claims. Jesus has authority to say you must be born again because Jesus is the one who came from heaven and can speak of heavenly things and of earthly things. And Nicodemus comes to him and says, how can these things be? For him to admit that was to admit that he had misunderstood the entire point of the Old Testament scriptures that he claimed to know. Jesus rebukes Nicodemus for not knowing his Bible. Now, sometimes we think the error of the Pharisees was that they, they knew too much and it kind of was head knowledge and it didn't shape the way that they lived. That's never what scripture or Jesus rebukes them for. They're never rebuked for what they know. They're rebuked for what they do not know. They're rebuked because Jesus comes in and says, okay, you're the one who should know these things. You're the one who claims to know these things and you don't know it? If you really knew what this is saying, you would see me standing before you and say, this is the one it all talked about. 
Jesus' rebuke for Nicodemus was, you don't understand the things you think you understand. There was a gap between what his reputation was and what reality was. Would people be surprised how little you read the Bible? How little you know the Bible? Maybe let me ask this. Would you be surprised how little you know the Bible? Nicodemus was. He thought he got it. He thought he mastered it. He thought he understood it. And Jesus comes to him and says, listen, you've missed the whole point of it. He said, Josh, that's okay. Easy to see now. We can see now how the Old Testament is all about Jesus. But in that day, uh, you know, that, you kind of give him a little break here. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. But furthermore, John's gospel is structured in a way that you and I can't reach that conclusion and say, well, it was going to be hard for people to get that in that day. Because already in the first two chapters, we have seen this. John the Baptist, Andrew, Philip, and Nathaniel all use Old Testament imagery and quotations to say this Jesus is the one that was talking about. All these other people are getting it. Nicodemus didn't. He didn't see. If you can read the Old Testament and you can miss how it is all about the coming Messiah who would save his people by faith through a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, then you have missed the whole point of why it was given. It's all about Jesus. These people around him seem to recognize that Nicodemus did not. So here you have the teacher of Israel, the one who claimed to know the scriptures. Jesus rebukes him to say, you don't really know it. So what does Jesus do in response to that? He uses an Old Testament illustration. And says, all right, all right, you want an example of that? I'll give you one. And he pulls an Old Testament illustration, an Old Testament story, and says, all right, this is pointing to me. And here's what he says in verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus says, right, you, you missed me in scripture, here's an example that's pointing to me. It's from Numbers chapter 21. In Numbers chapter 21, Israel's wandering through the wilderness, and guess what they're doing? They're complaining. They're getting quite good at that. And the people were complaining against God, and they're complaining against Moses. Why? Because they, they didn't like wandering in the wilderness. They're like, Egypt is better than this. And they didn't like the food that God was serving. They said, could we have another menu, please? We would like something different. It was sinful rebellion against the Lord, and in response to that, he sent a bunch of fiery serpents, snakes, in their midst. Can you imagine what that would have been like in the Israelite camp that day? Be sitting there in your tent, and all these snakes start slithering by, so many that you can't even number them. They start crawling all over all your things, and you say, well, you're trying to run away, but you can't because they're so numerous. I mean, this is Indiana Jones' worst nightmare we're talking about here, and maybe for some of you as well. These fiery, venomous snakes began biting the people. And many of them died for their rebellion, died for their sin. And as they were suffering in the snake bite, they had been longing for the snake pit of Egypt. And the Lord says, all right, I'll, I'll send you snakes instead. And so finally they reach a point where they say, this is too much. And so they go to Moses and say, we repent we are sorry for the sins we have committed against you and the sins we have committed against God. Would you please ask the Lord to remove these snakes from us? These people are suffering from the snake bite. They, they see people dying around them. And so Moses goes to the Lord as the mediator of Israel and asks the Lord to remove the snakes. And so here's what the Lord tells Moses. Create this bronze snake and lift it up on a pole. 
And if anyone is bitten by a snake in the camp of Israel, all they have to do is look at that snake on a pole and they'll be saved. And Jesus saw this as pointing to him. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. See, Moses lifted up a snake upon a pole, but Jesus, the greater Moses, has lifted up himself upon a cross to, lift it, to be lifted high, naked, and shamed, and hung to die, yet hanging there in triumph. In the stead of ruined sinners, there hangs the lamb in victory. He's lifted up upon a cross. And Jesus is anybody who looks at the Son of Man, anyone who looks at Jesus the Christ and believes in him will be saved. Not just saved from his temporary snake bite, but saved eternally. See, God has undone the ultimate snake bite of the serpent in the garden long ago. That snake has been crushed. The sinner has been saved. And why? Because the Son of Man was lifted high upon a cross. That whosoever, whoever would believe in him, would be saved. See, Numbers 21 tells us there's plenty of people who died from the snake bite. And Numbers 21 tells us there's plenty of people who lived by looking to the bronze snake. Here's what it doesn't tell us. And I wonder, how many people still died while the snake was lifted up upon that pole? And thought, that's too easy. That's too simple. There's got to be something different. Are you kidding me, Moses? We're not dumb. This little bronze snake, that's it? Friend, do not be one of those people. Do not be, look at Jesus lifted high upon a cross, and you say, that's too simple, that's too easy, but the Bible says simply look at him and be saved. Look to Christ, look away from your sin, and look to Jesus instead. It's that simple. Look to Christ lifted high upon a cross in the place of sinners, and trust that all who look to him by faith will be saved. That's what Jesus says. You know, I think the best illustration of this comes from the conversion story of Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher over in Europe. Spurgeon was raised in a very religious environment. He read plenty of theology books as a kid. He sought to understand these things, and yet he was not saved. Didn't know, how can I be made right with God? He, he wrote later that if you had told him that to go to 50 things to be right with God, he would have done them, because he's trying to figure out, how can I be right with God? And so one day, he's 15 years old, he's going around to churches trying to figure out, will someone tell me how I can be made right with God? And it's a January morning, he's 15 years old, and a massive snowstorm comes upon him. And he can't get to the church he was planning to go to. So instead, he's diverted to this small church here, about a dozen people. The preacher didn't even make it that morning. Uh, we're not essential, apparently. And the preacher, uh, uh, just a man from the congregation, a tailor, got up in the pulpit, he opened the scripture, and here's what Spurgeon says from there, in his own words. The text was, look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, from Isaiah 45. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. He began thus, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now that does not take a great deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or even your finger. It's just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn how to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. And then it says, look unto me. And then he said in his broad Essex accent, many of you are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. And then the good man followed up his text in this way, putting the words into the mouth of Christ. Look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. 
Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend, and I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look unto me, look to me. And when he had gotten about that length, he had managed to spin out about 10 minutes, and he was at the length of his tether. And then he looked at me under the gallery. And I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. And he then said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to having remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow struck. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And then he shouted as only a primitive Methodist can, young man, look to Jesus Christ. And there and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun and I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Friends, do you see how simple this is? Look to Christ. Don't spend your time looking around at other people, comparing yourself to them. Don't spend your time looking within at yourself. Spend your time looking up at Christ Jesus, lifted high upon a cross in the place of sinners, that all who would look to him, all who would trust in him would be saved. Look away from your sin. Look away from yourself. Look away from your surroundings and look instead to Christ, to look to Jesus from the desperation of sin, from the deadness of our condition, from the snake pit of death and look to him for life. And all who look to him will be saved. And what happens when you are born again? The only, the only way you can look to him is if you've been first born again by the Spirit of God. And what happens then? When you've been born again, what happens? Well, you see Jesus more clearly than you did before. You see him more clearly than you did before. Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He can't even see it. Moses couldn't enter the promised land, but he could see it. He could look into it. You and I can't see the kingdom. We can't look into the kingdom. We are far removed from it unless God has worked a miraculous work in our hearts. Nicodemus comes at night because he is spiritually blind. He does not see these things from Scripture. See, an unbeliever can read the Bible and they can understand a great many things, but only a believer in Christ can actually see the main storyline of Scripture running throughout and see that as precious. Not because there's some mystery here, but because the God of this age has blinded the eyes of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, the image of God. So when you read the Bible, do you see Jesus all throughout? And when you see Jesus, do you see him as more glorious, more precious more beautiful than you once did? When you were born again, you see Jesus more clearly than you once did. When you were born again, you also love Jesus more deeply than you once did. You love him more deeply than you once did. See, there are two different kinds of belief in John's gospel. There's the superficial kind of belief that looks at the signs, and there's the supernatural kind of belief because you've been born again. There are two kinds of belief, and I think it comes down to this. What do you love most? What do you truly love most? See, as wonderful as these other miracles of Christ are, it does not take a regenerate heart to love it when Jesus gives you the best wine. It does not take a regenerate heart to love it when he gives you water when you are thirsty. It does not take a regenerate heart to love it when he gives you bread when you are hungry. It does not take a regenerate heart to love it when he heals the sick. But it does take being born again for you to be able to say, Jesus and Jesus alone is my greatest treasure. 
That, you know, Jesus, if you gave me the wine and the bread and the water and the healing and you did not give me yourself, it would not be worth it. And Jesus, if you in your good providence for whatever reason would choose not to give me those things, you are still good. You are still my deepest joy, my greatest love, and I'm following you. There's a difference between a kind of belief that settles on the signs. See, the world around us wants the same things as that, and so if you see Jesus is merely a means of getting that, your heart hasn't been changed. But if you say, I desire Jesus more than any of it, he is more precious to me than any of it, that's only possible if you've been born again. When you're born again, you love Jesus more deeply than you once did, you see Jesus more clearly than you once did, and you serve Jesus more joyfully than you once did. You serve him more joyfully. See, you may have been trying all these sorts of things, thinking, you know what, this might make me right with God. As long as I'm a nice person doing the right things, well, that's gonna be enough. But now, you do those things and serve with joy and freedom because you know, these things could never merit my standing before God, but praise him that he has done it through the work of Christ. And so now I can serve him with freedom and joy. See, only the gospel really frees up a person to serve with such joy like that because if we don't understand the gospel, we will either be serving and doing these good things out of fear of punishment or we will be doing them out of some self-serving motive. But the gospel frees us up to say, it's not about what I do, it's about what Jesus has done. And in that case, then guess what? I can serve to the glory of God and the good of others and be freed up to do that and take great joy in doing that. And only those who've been born again can truly have that kind of freedom. And I think Nicodemus is an example of this. See, he shows up a few other times in John's gospel. Notice he leaves this encounter with Jesus, not a believer. Jesus does not press him to say, you gotta decide right here, right now. Jesus has a better understanding of conversion than that. Jesus lets Nicodemus walk, and he doesn't get it. Nicodemus does not understand it, and he leaves still in darkness, but wondering and wondering. John chapter seven, Nicodemus shows up again. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, are, 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 are pretty upset with Jesus, as was customary, and they're wondering, what do we do about it? Well, let's kill him. And Nicodemus speaks up, and Nicodemus says, okay, time out, pause. Um, why don't we let him explain himself first? The law doesn't really let us do this unless they get a hearing, and so let's, let's hear him out. Now, that is not exactly a banner confession of faith right there. Oh, you know what, let's just see what he has to say, and then we'll kill him if he says the wrong thing. No, that's okay, it's not, it's not a good confession of faith. I don't think Nicodemus at that point is a believer, but there's something about Jesus that is stuck in his mind that he just can't move on from. There's something about this conversation. In fact, John reminds us in John 7, Nicodemus, who had come to him earlier at night, there's something about this conversation that lingers with him, and he just can't move on from it. John chapter 19, Jesus, the Son of Man, has been lifted high upon a cross and killed in the place of sinners. Joseph of Arimathea comes and says, can I have his body to bury it, to give him a proper burial? And who comes with Joseph? It was Nicodemus, who had earlier come to Jesus by night. And Nicodemus comes bringing uh, 75 pounds worth of spices, way more than is necessary, incredibly costly. And he comes to anoint the body of Jesus for burial. Now, commentators will debate whether Nicodemus was genuinely saved or converted, but I lean toward he was. That this is an evidence that as he comes to anoint the body of Jesus for burial, he is trusting in the Son of Man who is lifted up upon that cross for him. Nicodemus comes to serve the Lord. 
I think he got it, but really that's not the most important question. The most important question is not, well, did Nicodemus get it? Did he understand it? Did he believe? The most important question is, do you? Do you believe in this Jesus? Do you get it? Do you understand it? Jesus says, whoever believes in me may have eternal life. And that whoever included Nicodemus, it includes me and it includes you. Each one of you, whoever would look to this Jesus will have eternal life. So the question is, are you looking to Jesus? Are you looking less at yourself, less at the things of the world, less at uh, all these other gifts and blessings, as good as they might be, and more at the Savior, and saying, you, Lord, are my deepest joy. Is he the object of greatest delight for your soul? Is he the one who occupies your thoughts and your gaze? Really, this is the entirety of the Christian life, that you look to Jesus and live for him. Do not rest your hope of eternity by looking around at other people or by looking within at yourself, but only by looking up at Jesus. Some of you are very good at looking around at other people, comparing yourselves to them. And that will bring you great joy when you realize, hey, you know what, I'm better than so-and-so. And it will plunge you to the pits of despair when you realize, hey, you know what, there's someone out there who's better than me. But do not spend your time looking around at other people, comparing yourself to them. Do not spend your time looking within. Others of you are experts. Might, might I say all of us are experts. So looking within and saying, what's going to make me happy? What's going to drive me? What's, what's going to satisfy me? And you look within and say, I'm just going to kind of guide my own life to, to meet whatever is going to make me happiest. But that is not where life is found. See, the Christian is one who spends their life looking up at Jesus. So says, I, I'm going to turn from my sin. I'm gonna turn from these things. I'm gonna not look so much around me. I'm not gonna look so much within me. I'm gonna look up at Jesus and I'm gonna fix my eyes upon him. It's as simple as that. But it takes a lifetime of practice, day by day by day. You know, slowly, subtly, over the course of the day, over the course of the week, we kind of, our eyes start drifting to the other things and it's cast my gaze back to him. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. And keep looking at him. Christians are those who spend their time looking up. And, and remember, that if you have been born again of God, you did nothing to earn that. You did nothing to merit that. It was a work of God in you. And if that's the case, and if God's the one who did this work, then guess what? God's the one who will keep doing that work in you and will keep you. The basis of our assurance as Christians comes in the fact that we did not earn it in the first place, which means we can't do something to unearn it now. But if God chose us by his grace and sent his spirit to work in our hearts to cause us to see Jesus and, and, and love Jesus, then we trust that he is the same God who will keep us looking to Jesus and loving Jesus no matter what, through all our days. So rest in him, trust him, keep looking to him, trust that he is faithful and he will do it. And why is that? It's because he loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this gift you have given to us of life. It's unearned, undeserved, unmerited, and yet you freely give it to us in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray I don't know where people's hearts are this morning. But Jesus, you do. You know what is in man. And it means that you know what is in each person here this morning. You know what they're clinging to. You know what they're loving. You know what they're running after. And I pray that you, by your spirit, would would work in their hearts. That those who, who do not know you 
as Savior and Lord, that you would work by your spirit to bring them to life, give them new birth. And I pray for all of us, those who do know you and those who don't, Lord, that you, by your spirit, would cause us to look to Jesus, to look away from our surroundings, to look away from ourselves, to look away from the things that occupy our time and our attention, and to look to Jesus. May we live for him and glorify him because you deserve all of it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.